Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, It is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. We're we're in John 17 today. We were in John uh, 14 or 16 last week, if you remember, and we're we're continuing Jesus's conversation. Before we get into it, um, I want to set the stage a little bit about what's going on with Jesus and his disciples. They're, they've had the Last Supper. We, we, if we're familiar with what's going on at the end of the book of John. They've had the Last Supper. Jesus has dipped the, um, the bread into the stuff, given it to Judas. Judas has left. They've, they've washed feet, you know, all of this stuff at the Last Supper. It's actually chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 of the book of John. This one dinner. You ever been at dinner so long, you're like, really? Six chapters, you know, worth of dinner? Well, this is their time. At the end of chapter 17, they get up and they go out of Jerusalem. They go over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And somebody tell us all what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane that very night. Who shows up? Will? Um, I don't know about the Trojan warriors. Roman war. Okay, yeah. Well, uh, the Roman war. But it was actually uh, not yet Rome. It was the temple war guards the temple warriors and they were led by a guy named judas the kiss of betrayal this is the very night that jesus gets arrested remember arrested remember peter picks up the sword and he goes and cuts off malchus's ear you know jesus is like hey don't do that this is why i come this is that night okay chapters 13 through 17 and then into 18 of john it's all the same night Sometimes we don't think about that. John is only 21 chapters, but 13 through 21 is like just two, three days. It's, it's pretty crazy how much detail is in these last few hours of Jesus' life in the book of John. So in John 17, Jesus is still in the dinner. They're, they're wrapping up. They're having some conversation. And before they dismiss for prayer, for, for, to go across the Kidron Valley, to go up to the Get, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays. And we're going to talk this morning about this prayer of Jesus. And you know, if, if you really think about it, many of us, probably most of us, have grown up in church family or church culture, and prayer is kind of like, you know, it's like no big deal. It's, it's prayer. It's what we do. But if you objectively think about it, prayer is kind of a funny thing. I mean, let's just imagine that you've never seen anybody pray. You've never heard of this thing of prayer. And you walk into a room or to a restaurant or to whatever, and you spy some guy sitting over in the chair at, at a table, perhaps at a restaurant. His eyes are closed. He's muttering some words under his breath for two or three minutes, maybe 30 seconds, whatever. And then he opens his eyes. Would you not agree with me 
that if you had no context of what that was, that that's a little strange. Who's he talking to? He's got split personality. But what is going on here? Why is his eyes closed? What is he doing? Well, prayer is a unique thing that we don't have any problem with, of course. But it's a very unique thing that, that if you were not accustomed to it, you got to admit, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit strange. Does anybody remember, I certainly don't, does anybody remember the first time you ever prayed? Anybody remember that? I don't know if there would be anybody or not. You don't have to tell us about it. You can just like say, yeah, I remember, you know. Okay, you got one or two. I, it's, I, I, I just don't remember because, I mean, I grew up in a Christian home. We probably prayed all, I don't, I don't know, you know. I mean, my kids are three and four, and they're, they're praying. So, I mean, I, I did the same. I, I don't remember. But I can imagine if you're like an adult and you go to pray for the first time ever in your life, that's got to be a little weird, a little different. What do I do? I just talk? You know, clo- you know what is this? So what we're going to look at today is Jesus's one of his last prayers. Um, and it's a very revealing prayer. Jesus prayed a lot. The scriptures talk about how Jesus goes away to, the, to, to pray early in the morning. Several times in the book of Mark, he goes up into a mountain to pray. And so prayer was a very important thing for Jesus, but very rarely do we have the record of what Jesus actually prayed. But for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit inspired the disciple named John to record what Jesus actually prayed this night of the Last Supper right before he got arrested. And we, 2,000 years later, are going to get to read it and hopefully be floored by what Jesus actually prays. Now, before we read it, Do you think that God is happy to answer the prayers of Jesus? I mean, let's think about it. The Son. Is he happy to answer the prayers of Jesus? Now, I know that we probably have been in times in our lives when we've been in situations where we've prayed for things and we feel as though God's not hearing us. I know we feel that way. But, but let's take that feeling and set it aside and think of Jesus. Is God the Father willing and excited and ready to answer the prayers of Jesus? I'd have to say, yeah. You know, there is that one time when he's in the garden in a few hours after we read this prayer where he prays, you know, let this, if, it, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You know, the whole thing of being slaughtered and taking on the sins of the whole world. He's like, if it's possible... But, but, but his prayer isn't that it be removed. His prayer is nevertheless not my will be done, but thy will. And so I just envision the Father being super ready and poised to answer the prayer of Jesus. What are some of the prayers we've heard Jesus pray? Remember the, um, the fish and the, uh, the bread, right? He gave thanks to it, and then he multiplied fish and bread right in front of him. I mean, the father could have said no, but, but he didn't. He said yes, and he did this. In fact, Jesus says, everything you see me do, it's actually the father doing it through me. Then, you know, he, several times Jesus would pray before he would heal somebody, raise somebody from the dead. He would 
he would implore the Father to work through him in those situations. So I would say, yeah, the Father is willing and eager and excited to answer the prayers of his son, Jesus. If that's the case, do you think, before we even read this, do you think that the Father has answered the prayer that we're going to read? We hadn't read it yet. We hadn't got there yet. But do you think the Father is ready and willing, knowing his track record, to answer this prayer that Jesus is going to pray in John 17? Yeah. I mean, let's work with that assumption that the Father is excited to answer this prayer. So let's see what this prayer is. And the prayer is actually a prayer for you. He prays for you. Now, he starts off here in verse 13, and he's talking specifically about his disciples. But in a few verses, we'll see, and we'll get there, but I want us to kind of know where we're going before we get there, that he actually says, now this that I've prayed for these disciples, I'm not praying just for them, but also for everyone who believes because of their message. Well, guess what? That's you. That's me. 2,000 some odd years later, we have heard this message as reported by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Apostle Paul, etc., and we have come to believe this very same message. And so Jesus is not just praying for the disciples, you know, the, the 12. He's actually praying for you also. So let's start here in verse 13 and see what Jesus is praying. He says, but now I come to you, this is to, to, to the Father, you as the Father here, And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. A couple quick things that I want to point out because we've got a lot of verses to to, to walk through. But Jesus was doing something. He was sharing this message, this news of this revelation of of Christ and and the, the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of the Father. He was sharing this. He was doing his earthly ministry so that his joy, the joy of Jesus, would actually be in the believers. And I put in in red as an emphasis. And we're going to talk more about this really next week. But this idea, the joy being, you know, delight and and gladness, peace, this, it's not necessarily an emotion, but it's a state of reality. What Jesus is saying, I want this joy that I have, we'll get to what that is in a second, I want this joy that I have to actually be inside of these believers. He's talking specifically about the disciples, but again, in a few minutes, he's going to say not just them, but everyone who believes, which is you and me. The question I have is, you know, don't we spend so much of our time, our energy, and our effort looking for joy in the things of this world? I mean, don't we? Whether they be relationships, even marriage. Look, marriage is a fantastic, awesome, if you've never heard me talk about marriage, I value marriage to the nth degree because of it being a picture of Christ and his bride. But my wife, as awesome as she is, and her husband, as awesome as he is, we were not given to each other to source the joy for each other. We were given to each other to enjoy, sure, but she is not the source of my joy, and I am not the source of her joy. 
And when I get that backwards, when I get that confused, then I start sucking life from her and she's not the source of life. Who is the source of life? Jesus says, I've got this joy, my joy, that it would be in them. He didn't, give, he didn't give me a bride to find joy in her. He gave me himself to find joy in him. Think about possessions. We've got a house. Many of you know that we're doing this reciting project. Love our house. I'm so excited about our house. But it's very easy for me or any of us to find joy, to look for joy in our possessions and our stuff, to try to find joy in them. Well, what happens when the tones go off and I get the page on my phone that says, hey, fire at 40, whatever my address is, I don't even know, 4805 Meacham's River Road. And I get that on my phone because I'm a chaplain with the fire department. And I'm like, whoa, in my house, if, I'm, if it's the source of my joy is burning in flames, then what do I have left? I have nothing. Not just materialism, nothing, but I have no source of living if my source is in stuff. Now, does that mean that the, a house or a marriage or relationships are evil? Of course not. They were given to us to enjoy, but they in of themselves cannot be the source of our joy. Jesus is saying that I, these words that I've spoken this last three and a half years, I have done this so that my joy, and we'll get to what that means in a second, may be in them. Does the Father, did the Father answer that prayer of Jesus? I'd have to say yes. So what that means is that whatever this joy Jesus speaks of, which again, we'll see in a second, is now where? In you. That has got to be a foundational anchor in our Christian living. That the joy of Jesus is actually in me. And his joy, his life is the source of my life and my joy. But it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to look for stuff to give, even relationships, even godly relationships as source of joy. Um, in other words, Jesus is saying whatever Jesus' source of joy is, he's doing something on earth that will result in us having that same source. Well, what is it? What is this joy that he's speaking of? Well, fortunately, he doesn't leave us uh, hanging. Verse 14, check this out. I have given them your word. Now, let's pause there for a second for all of our fundamental friends. Word, the Greek word. Logos. Familiar? You've probably heard that phrase before. There's many different Greek words for the word word in English. You have logos, you have rhema, you have several different ones. This word logos does not mean written word. So Jesus actually is not talking about the 66 chapters of the Bible. See, many of us, myself included for years, the joy of Jesus is the Bible. And if I just memorize enough of it and get enough of it into me, then I'll have the joy of Jesus. I mean, that makes good sense, you know, in a certain sense. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. No, listen, I'm all for reading the Scriptures. I'm all for memorizing as much as we want to memorize. But Jesus is talking about a different source, not just intellectual knowledge, the Scriptures. If... Go with me on a journey here. If the simple knowledge of Scripture is the source of joy, 
who in Jesus' day should have been the most joy-filled? The Pharisees, the scribes, the elders. Now, I'm no scribe, Pharisee, elder, historian, but just from my cursory readings of the Scriptures, I don't come away thinking that they're joy-filled. I, think of, I come away thinking of them as the religion police, slamming an adulterous woman in the floor and say, all right, Jesus, what do you say? We say stoner. Ah, it's not too much joy. So he's not talking about, I have given them your word. Jesus didn't come to bring 66 books. This word, word, logos, is the revealed word, the spoken word, the message, a message. I came to bring them a message. Well, what's the message? Well, because of this message, the world has hated them. And because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So he's talking not about 66 books of the Bible, but if you remember John chapter 1, the same book, John, this is John 17, if you rewind to John 1, the very beginning says, in the beginning was the Word, Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Skip down to verse 14. And the Word, Logos, the revelation of the Father, was made flesh and dwelt among us. So what I think Jesus is saying, and I could be dead wrong, is I gave them, I have come to reveal to them what this true message of life in you and who you are is really all about. Remember how I think it was Thomas, I forget, maybe it was Judas, not Iscariot, who said something like, hey, you say the Father, but we don't know the Father. And remember what Jesus' response was? If you have seen me, Jesus, then you have seen the Father. This is the Word. The Word, the message of, Jesus, of, of the Father is now embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, I've brought this to the people so that they may have this joy within them. So again, please don't hear me wrong. I'm all for reading the Scriptures. I do it every day. I'm all for memorizing the Scriptures. But the Words on a page alone is not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a revelation of him and of the Father. Jesus is basically saying, I have given them an understanding of you, Father. Mercy, love, forgiveness, grace. I talked a minute ago about the woman caught in adultery. Okay? When that happened, Jesus didn't even acknowledge the guilt and the condemnation and the shame. He's riding in the sand. They start leaving. And he reaches down. Now this is the revelation of the Father towards this woman. This is Jesus bringing the Word. Again, not 66 books, but a message, a revelation of the Father to this woman. And he reaches down and says, Woman, where are your accusers? She says, they're gone. He says, neither do I accuse you. And because of that, the world would not receive him. Because the world was saying, stone her, stone her. That's what she deserves. But Jesus is saying, Father, I have given them the reality of who you are. And because of that, the world has hated them. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Jesus was known as the friend of what? Sinners. 
You want to know what the Father is like? Get to know what Jesus is like. Friend of sinners. I've said this before, but so, so often I've thought of the, you know, the Spirit as kind of, you know, the encourager, the helper. I've thought of Jesus as kind of like that really great big brother who's always helping and, you know, picking up when you fall down. But I've always thought of the Father as this cold, distant, stern, never, to, never able to please Dad. And uh, what Jesus is saying is if you've gotten to know me, you've gotten to know him. And that just blows my mind. He's saying, I brought this word. And then he says in verse 15, he's praying. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Very specific. Again, this is Jesus praying to the Father, specifically about the disciples, but in a minute he's going to extend it to all of us. And he does not want the Father to remove these disciples from the world, but he wants to protect the disciples from the devil. Now, in church history, we know that of the 12 disciples, of course, we know what happens to Judas. He hangs himself. But of the remaining 11 from church history, not necessarily from the Bible, but from church history, we know that those 11 disciples, all of them die a martyr's death. Some are very famous. Peter being crucified. Church history says upside down because he didn't want to be crucified the same way the Lord was crucified. Others pulled apart. A gruesome end to many of their lives. So how could the Father be keeping the enemy from them if they're now dying these gruesome deaths? Well, the same guy who wrote this, John chapter 17, his name's John, he's one of these disciples. In 1 John chapter 5 verse 18, he says that the, the enemy cannot touch that which is born of God. Now let's, let's let that sink in for a second. The enemy cannot touch that which is born of God. Now, how many of us, our flesh was born of God? You see that? My flesh was born of my mama. And it was born of her mama and her mama all the way back to this original mama named Eve. So my flesh is not born of the Spirit. It's not born of God. But my new heart, my new man, my new identity, who I am, the Spirit, is born of God. So yes, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I think chapter 4, I can be beaten, perplexed, I can be, you know, put to, you know, open, you know, uh, uh, persecution, but I will never be destroyed because he saw this body as simply a remnant of the old creation, but within was a treasure, the new man, the new heart inside of this weak earthen vessel. And so, yeah, the enemy definitely ended the lives of, of, of uh, Peter, Matthew, John, Bartholomew. Bartholomew never gets a shout-out, so we'll give a shout-out to Bartholomew. And so he ended their lives on earth. But the reality is in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God came, they were all born again of the Spirit. And that life that they were given, their new created life, the devil could never touch. And so they say, even this prayer is answered. 
And he says in verse 16, they, his disciples, these 12, well, I guess 11 now because Judas has taken off, are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Man, this, so many of these little standout verses can be their own full Sunday morning discussions on and of themselves. But all of us understand that Jesus does not have his source, his origin in this world. He is the creator of this world. Colossians 1 says that it was Jesus, his voice, who actually rang out, let there be light. So the creator, God himself, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, could not be of this world. And he is saying that they, talking specifically about the disciples, but again, he's going to include all believers in a second in this, are not of this world, even as. That Greek uh, uh, conjunction, even as, that means in the exact same way that I am not of this world, which we always shake our heads and say, yeah, Jesus is not of this world. He is saying that those who believe in me are equally not of this world. And to which we say, huh? How is that possible? It's possible because of a new birth. You see, when Paul says things like Jerusalem above is our mother, what he's He's not just like, you know, trying to come up with some flowery language to fill up a scroll. He's actually revealing the fact that our new heart, our new spirit does not originate from anything in this world. Our old spirit, the old man certainly did. It came from Adam. But the old man was crucified with Christ. It died so that a brand new heart, a brand new spirit could be born from another place. Guys, this is Christianity 101. One, but it is absent in the vast majority of church teaching for whatever reason. Jesus is saying, even as I'm not of this world, those who believe in me are equally not of this world. And he explains that a little bit in verse 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Now, sanctify, that's a big churchy word. It just simply means set them apart. Set them apart from what? From the world. Set them apart from, from the world. The Everything that has origin in Adam, set them apart in the truth. And last week we talked about this word of truth, the word, this word truth, aletheia, which uh, the spirit was described as the spirit of truth for those who are here last week or listen to the podcast. The word truth, aletheia, literally means reality. He's saying, set them apart. Oh, go ahead, verse 17, sorry. Set them apart in this new reality. What new reality? That's what he's talking about. That they're not of this world just as I'm not of this world. That this joy be in them. This a new reality. Set them apart in this new reality. And he says, your word is this new reality. Your word is the reality. What word? Again, the 66 books of the Bible. I'm not, I have nothing wrong with the 66 books of the Bible, but that's not what he's talking about. This word logos, this revelation of new life in me, this, this separation from everything that we had in Adam and a death, a burial, and a resurrection of a new man. This is now reality. Set them apart in this. Verse 18, as you have sent me into this world, I have sent them into the world. So there's like a commissioning of sorts happening here. You, Father, sent me to bring this message 
I wasn't of the world. Now, because of their faith in me, they're not of this world. And now I am sending them into the world with this same message. Look at verse 19. There's so much in verse 19. We don't have time for it, but it says, for their sake or for their benefit, for their uh, need, I sanctify myself. Now, let's just pause here because most of the time when we hear the word sanctify or sanctification, we think of, you know, behavior improvement. Um, Well, if that's the case, you know, why in the world is Jesus using this to describe himself? Jesus is improving his behavior for the sake of the disciples. Sanctify is not simply behavior improvement plans. Sanctify or sanctification means the setting aside. So let's just, for practical examples, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight chairs around this table. We're going to take one of these chairs and we're going to set it over here. In the most strict understanding of this word sanctify, Walt just sanctified that chair. Sounds silly, doesn't it? But that's what it means. I set it aside. I made it different. These chairs, these seven that remain, are common. This one is uncommon. It's different. It's over here. That's what sanctify means. That's that's the basic understanding. And so what Jesus is saying, for their benefit, I sanctify myself. What is he saying? I am setting myself aside. I am removing myself from this this, uh, collection, from this world. I think he's talking about his own death, his own burial, and his own resurrection. For their benefit, I am going to set myself apart from this world through dying, through being buried, and through being raised from the dead so that they, see that? So that themselves, they themselves may also be sanctified in the truth or in the reality. So I'm going to do this. Be separated. I'm going to die, be buried, be raised so that they can die, be buried, and raised. You see that? So that they can follow what I have done. So that they could be a part of what I have done. And he says in verse 20, and here's the big kicker. This is where it all comes to you and me 2,000 years later. So far, specifically, he's been talking about his disciples, that the joy would be in them. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. I sanctify myself so that they may be set apart with me. And verse 20 I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these, these 11 who are sitting around this table as Jesus is praying, and John is like, let me write this down as fast as I can. He said, I don't, I'm not praying for them only. Look at this. But for those who believe in me through their word. And who is that? Anybody else? Yeah. It's it's us. We who believe through their message. That's the same logos. Through their word. Because of the message that they shared, 
taking it to the ends of the earth, we now believe. And so Jesus is saying, all this that I've prayed for the disciples, these 12, I'm praying it not just for them, but for all those who in the future who would ever follow me. And that's you. Now listen to this. This is just where it starts to get, if not already crazy, it gets even crazier specific. That those who would believe in me, I'm praying for them that those who would believe through the word, word. And here's the content of the, this specific prayer, verse 21. That they may all be one. Now, the majority of my life, I know you're sick of me saying this, the majority of my life, I had it wrong, majority of my life, you know, but it's just it's, it's what you got. I thought Jesus is sitting here at the dinner table with his disciples praying that all of the believers in the future would just get along. That there would be, you know, cold hands around the campfire, kumbaya, and let's just be one. Let's set our differences aside and let's just get along. Let's just be one. Let's be unified. Let's get together. Nothing in the world wrong with that. But that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. You say, well, how do you know? Because we can just keep reading. Here's how he defines one. Look at this. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so in that same definition of oneness, as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, we got that understanding. They are one. In the same exact way that they, believers, here's the one, will also be in us. So here's what Jesus is praying. I'm going to sanctify myself. I'm going to set myself apart so that they would be able to be sanctified. And I'm not just praying, Father, for these 11 that are sitting around the table, but for any and all who would believe in me so that they may be one. And here's the definition of one. So there's no confusion. It's not just kumbaya, but it's them in us and us in them in the exact same way that the Father is in Jesus and that Jesus is in the Father. I do not want to speed past this. However one Jesus is with the Father and the Father is with Jesus, can you imagine that oneness? Can you imagine that okayness? However one Jesus and the Father are, here's what Jesus is praying, that those who believe would have that same oneness. Us, the Father and the Son, in them, and them in us. One big union. Now, if we saw that, and if we believed that, would we have to worry about getting together and being in unity with each other? Unity with each other is the byproduct of the revelation of our union with the Father. You see that? So he is saying, I want the same relationship, the same union that I experience with you to be their experience. My joy, 
Remember that from the beginning? Father, may my joy be in them. Well, what is the joy, Jesus? What's the source of that joy? It's union with the Father. Jesus' joy was his, is his oneness with the Father. And he is saying, I want that same joy, that same life-giving reality to now be theirs. Humans. It's crazy. Now look at this. Verse 22. I don't even know what to say for this. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Now, I did not write that. That's actually in the Bible. This is Jesus, you know, the Son, praying. The glory you have given to me, I now have given to Hart. I now have given to Brandon, to Christine, to April. To I have given to Patrick, to Craig, to Rachel. How much of our Christian life is focused on us trying to give God glory? Let's be, let's be honest. We think, man, let my speech glorify God. Let my actions glorify God. May my relationships, may my work ethic glorify God. And those things are fantastic. Let's don't become lazy, you know, whatevers. But think about this. The glory that God gave Jesus, Jesus has now given you. He has made you glorious. Well, what does that mean? Okay, that sounds very you know, wonderful. But what does it mean? What is this glory? Well, what is it that Jesus has talked about this whole time? This oneness with the Father. He even says it. He defines it. That they, glory defined, that I've given them, that they may be one with us, is the idea, just as we are one with each other. Here's the glory. Here's glory defined by Jesus. Jesus says, I was glorified. I was given glory. Jesus was given glory in his oneness with the Father. And now he has given you oneness with the Father through him. And so now you have the same glory that Jesus has. Now, it is very easy, at least for me, to, to step over here to the side and think about the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, and the, the, who they are and their oneness and their, their, the awesomeness that they have. But it's very difficult for me to look in the mirror and look at my life, the flesh, and to say, I am that same and have that same glory. That's why this thing of true Christianity is just, it's, it's unbelievable. It really is almost unbelievable. It's such good news that it sounds too, be, too good to be true. And it's given. You see how it says give? We've got that in red. It was given to them. This is a gift. This isn't something that we earn, deserve, uh, a reward. It is a total gift that the 
Son has, the Father has given to the Son union with Him, and then the Son is now given to us. And now here's the greater details. Jesus makes this so incredibly specific. Verse 23, here's glory defined. I in them and you in me. Haven't we heard this? Didn't he already say this? I mean, he wants to make this so crystal clear. Here is the glory that you have. You have been given glory through your union with him. And then he says this, that they may be perfected in union, union, unity. So, so many of us define perfection based on behavior, Oh, I'm never going to be perfect. You know, I'm always going to mess up, you know. Well, yeah, duh, sin lives in your flesh. But here's what Jesus is saying. Perfection doesn't come through behavior. Perfection comes through union with the one who is perfect. And is this something you've worked hard for, or is this something that was given freely as a gift? So before we walk around saying, oh, look at me, I am perfect, Let's remember that is true because of our union with him, but let's remember it is a gift that you could never, no matter how cool you are, no matter how helpful you are, no matter how wonderful you are, that you could never, ever produce on your own. Here's the glory. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected, complete in union with us. So that, there's a purpose, the world may know that you have sent me and I, and loved them even as you have loved me. There it is again. We can all over here believe how much the Father loves the Son. We, we, we know that. But what Jesus is saying is that my prayer is that Jeff truly believes, Katie truly believes, that the same way you love me, Jesus, you love them. That's hard. So it's like, okay, Jesus, I want to believe that, but how? How can I see that? How can I, how can I believe that? How can I really understand that? Well, here we go. Verse 24, he doesn't leave us hanging. Look at this. This is so awesome. Father, I desire, this is Jesus, you know, the Son, the co-equal with the Father. This is the desire. If you ever wondered what Jesus desires of you, anybody ever wondered, what is Jesus, what does God desire of me? What is his will for my life? Anybody? I mean, is it just me? Okay. What is his will? Here it is in verse 24. I desire, this word desire Epithumia, my will, my longing, what I want more than anything. Here it is. Ready? That they also, whom you have given to me, be with me. Wait a second. That's it? What do you mean that's it? The desire of the God of the universe is that you be with him. Greg? And Graham, his desire is union with you. Well, that doesn't tell me which house to buy, which house makes best sense. It doesn't tell me which color or car to purchase. What's his will for me? 
those are important questions that he'll certainly give you guidance on, but his desire is you, John. His desire is you and union with you. I desire that they also whom you have given me, Jesus views you as a gift from the Father to him, whom you have given me, whom you have gifted me. My desire is that they would be with me where I am so that, here's purpose. Why does he want us with him? Here it is. This is so cool. So that they may see the glory you have given to me. What's that glory? Defined union, oneness, remember? I want them with me so that they can see what I have. Union with you that you gave me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's like Jesus knows. Huh, that's kind of a profound thought. Like he knows something here. Jesus knows how difficult it's going to be for you and me to believe that we are actually okay with the God of the universe. And so his desire is not just that he sanctify himself through this death, burial, and resurrection thing, but that it also pertain to you also so that you would actually be with him so that you and I could see, not with these eyeballs necessarily, but with, the, with our spirit, the union that the Son has with the Father. Now, let's, let's use our brains for a second. I know it's Sunday, but we can still use them. It's spring break, I know. But why in the world does Jesus want you and me to see? He uses a very specific word here, to see. Why does he want you and me to see the glory, the union between the Father and the Son? Why? Anybody? Okay, it's needed for us to know him. Let me just say it this way, because that's exactly right. He wants us to see the glory, the glory defined as the union between the Father and the Son, because that same union, glory, has been given to you. Do you see that? He wants you to see what Jesus has with the Father, because he has given that to you. See, it's hard for us, again, I've said this before, it's hard for us to believe that we could have that. And so with Jesus, knowing that, he says, okay, then just see what I have with the Father. Because what I have with the Father, this glorious union with him, is the same thing. You, if you can't believe it about yourself, believe it about me, and then let that leak into your own understanding of your new nature with him. You know, I've, I've been able to counsel many, many teenagers and parents of teenagers throughout the years, and uh, Eugene, I'm sure, would testify to what I'm about to say as, as in, in his line of work. Um, but it's unique that a child tends, not always, but tends to get their okayness as a human being, their, 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 their um, peace, inner peace, their okayness, not so much through their individual relationship with mom and their individual relationship with dad, which you would think, if those relationships are strong, then the kid would be okay. But I've just seen it too many times. But a child tends, and I'm just going to emphasize tends because it's not, you know, all the time. But a child tends not to get their individual okayness as a person through their individual relationships with mom and dad. But they tend to get their identity, their okayness, their peace through seeing 
the strength of dad's relationship with mom and mom's relationship with dad. You've seen it. You know what I'm talking about. And I've wondered for years, why is that the case? And then I read this verse this week. I was like, that's it. That's it. Just as a child needs to see the loving relationship between a father and a mother, his father and his mother, so that they can understand their place in this world in the exact same way the, the son desires for us to see this relationship, this union, this okayness, this oneness between the son and the father because we now have that same union. So awesome. So, so if you can't come to believe that you are okay with the God of the universe, here's the invitation from Jesus. Just see my union with him. Well, but I can't believe that I have union with him. Don't worry about that. Just believe my union with him. And watch over a lifetime. I'm on the 80-year plan myself. Over a lifetime, watch that change your understanding of your okayness with him. Do you see that? And this is his desire. This is his will. God, what is your will for my life that you see how much the son is loved by the father because you are loved the same way? That's his will. So can we stop praying, God, tell me your will for my life? Because here it is, John 17, verse 24. And a couple more verses and we're gonna wrap up. O righteous king, Oh, sorry, oh, righteous father. King Ezekiel went through my head there for a second. I don't know why. Um, oh, righteous father, although the world has not known you, I, yet I have known you. In other words, remember that image that I painted earlier? I know the spirit and I, could, I, I have this idea of the son, but the father, man, he just kind of... That impossible to please, judge. Here's what Jesus is saying. I know the reality. I know your true heart. The world doesn't. They're wrapped up in religion. They're wrapped up in, you know, this poor understanding. I know who you really are. And these have known that you sent me. So it's kind of like Jesus, the math teacher. It's kind of like saying, they don't really have a good understanding of you, but at least they believe that you sent me. And so if they can understand who I am and what I'm all about, then they're going to come to understand who you are and who you're all about. A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. What's that called? Something. That's it. Now, here's the last verse. And I have made your name who you are. It's not just, you know, some... some Elohim. I mean, he's not talking about just a name like, you know, Walt or Doug. He's talking about your, who you are. I've made your name known to them and will make it known. I love that. It's an ongoing reality of understanding and discovering who he is. So that, there's a purpose, the love which with which you have loved me, this is Jesus still praying, may be in them. 
The heart and desire of Jesus is for him to set himself apart through his death, burial, and resurrection so that we who trust in him also die, are buried, and raised from the dead so that we can be with him and see his loving relationship and union with the Father because that's the very same thing we have. Let's rewind mentally because I don't know if I can put Derek on the spot to go back to the first verse, but let's rewind mentally. He said at the very, very, very beginning, he said something to the effect effect of my desire or I want for my joy to be in them. And here is joy defined. Not getting a raise, though that's cool. Not not through, you know, landing a big, you know, corporate, you know, deal, though that's awesome. Joy defined is union with the Father. And that glory, as Jesus calls it, that the Father bestowed upon the Son in union with Him, He now bestows upon you as a gift who believe in Him. So here's our journey marker as we wrap up this uh, chapter or these few verses. Jesus did what he did, coming to earth, being born of a virgin, being born under the law. He did what he did so that, there's purpose, we could have what he has. And that's defined as perfect union, perfect okayness with the Father. I have no idea why this was so absent and it remains absent in so much of American Christianity. But friends, this is the heart of Jesus as he's pouring out his heart to his Father who loves him before the foundation of the world, begging that what's about to happen literally in 12 hours or so as he's hung on a cross, suspended between heaven and earth to reconcile man, earth, with God in heaven. This desire of our oneness with Him is the whole reason. He did what He did so that you and I could have what He has, union with the Father. Joy in them. Love in them, us in them, perfection in them, glory in them, union in them, the kingdom within them, righteousness in them. I don't know about you, but it sounds like there's a whole lot going on in them, and them is you. So what does this all matter? What does this all mean to us as we walk out of the room today facing the challenges that we have? I honestly believe that anything, anything can be thrown at us. I mean anything. 
and everything that has been thrown at you. Everything from death, everything from sickness, everything from termination of employment, everything from rejection of spouses and children. I mean, everything. Rejection. Everything could be, anything and everything could be thrown at you. And listen, it will be thrown at you because we live in a broken world. Anything and everything could be thrown at you. But if this reality becomes your reality, remember truth, reality, if this truth becomes your truth, this reality becomes your reality, it doesn't matter what we face because we know that we have an anchor, Christ Jesus himself, who has done something for us so radically that we now have actual okayness with the God of the universe. So yeah, this week, there's seven days till we come together again on Easter Sunday. I can guarantee that you're going to get some bad news. I won't get into the detail, but Thursday had some really, really bad news. Friday had some really, really great news. It happens. It's life. I was telling Jim about it. It happens. It's life. But where is our joy? Is our joy in the stuff that we do, the things that we create with our hands, even our marriages? We enjoy those. Yeah, sure. But that's not the source of joy. May my joy be in them. And the joy of the Son was his union with the Father. And if we, over a lifetime, begin to discover what true joy really is, a peace that surpasses understanding, then we, like Paul, can go through shipwreck, go through beatings, go through snake bites, go through all sorts of rejection from the Jews, the religious crowd, and he then still stands and says, for me to live is Christ. Why? Well, maybe he understood something that we in our religious mindsets struggle to understand. That his source of joy is his oneness with the God of the universe. We're not promised that a growing revelation of our oneness with the Father is going to curb life from being thrown at us. Life will be thrown at us. But a growing revelation of our oneness with Him, this joy that's in us, it allows us to walk through all of them almost as if it's blue skies every day. Not that it doesn't hurt. Not that it's not painful, but we understand that those things are not the source of joy, of life. But this something in us, Christ himself is. I hope that makes sense. I hope that we would read and believe this prayer of Jesus. Because, again, this, for whatever reason, is not even a blip on the radar screen of Christianity most of the time. Well, those are the thoughts that I have from uh, this chapter if, um, or this section of verses. If there's a thought or a question or a but what about or a hey, have you considered or you know something along those lines that anybody may have, we've got about 10, 15 minutes before we need to start uh, kind of tearing down. Um, is, uh, is there anybody who, who has something that you might want to share? I'll bring a, a mic for the betterment of the hearing uh, fellowship. Um, that might have a word of follow-up or of thought or concern or of edification or of, or of, or of. 
Yeah, Jim. I guess just want to say how much I appreciate this church. Um, you know, I've gone to church my entire life. I've never learned more than I have uh, coming than coming to here. Um, so I think of it as a privilege, as an opportunity. I'm certainly glad that we have uh, the, the leadership and uh, direction of Walt. Um, and uh, I, I just really think it's worth saying just because I, I really feel like I'm learning more about God here than I have ever learned in any other uh, gathering of believers. I appreciate that. Thank you. That's very encouraging. Yeah, Jeff, would you mind? Yeah, while you were talking, I was um, I was just just a lot of things were going through my mind, and you asked the question why, for example, in churches, it's it's you know, it's kind of hard to find places that talk about this a lot, and I, I just reflect on my own experience. It's um, I think growing up and even till recently, people have a sense that Christ has done something really good and really awesome, right? And that we're saved through grace and it's not our own works. And I think a lot of people kind of understand that. But what I really didn't understand, you know, so he made us right with him. What I really didn't understand is just how right right is. <laughs> right? I mean, you, you just don't understand when you, you kind of gloss over the, the passages that talked about his divine nature in us. And all those other passages that seem kind of weird and mystical and you say okay something good has happened but you just don't understand exactly what that is and I think uh, this is what you know is coming to the fore there's like for example while you were preaching I was um, uh, reflecting on the prodigal son and it was really interesting because prodigal son was working on the father's field before he left he left he went he got into trouble he decided, I mean, he went to the lowest of the lows. He was eating pig's food, which Jews never do. And then he decided, well, what am I doing here? I'm going to go back to the father. The, now, the father was looking for him, right? And the father never mentioned what he did. He just ran towards him. I've heard somebody preach at some point in time that that's the only time in Scripture you see God running towards something. And uh, he, he fell on him. He kissed him. The guy started to make an, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, apology for what he did. He didn't even think about that. He said, he took him in. He said, bring the robe. Now, he didn't have a robe before. <laughs> bring the robe, bring the fatted calf. Uh, let's celebrate for this. My son was lost and now he's found. And I think it's so consistent. You know, the scripture is Christ, even when he was telling that, of course, knew what was going to happen and how, you, how great the salvation was going to be. And so in telling that story, there was a subtle thing that, yeah, before the guy was, had a relationship, some sort of relationship with the father, but now that relationship is like 10 times more. He's almost like, I mean, they didn't even say that the father was wearing a robe. <laughs> he gave his son a robe, right? So I think Really, part of the issue is that we don't really get into Scripture deep enough to understand just how right right is and just how much more was given to us. So we understand some things happen, but we don't understand the extent. God has really gone beyond what, you know, we would ever imagine, and, and we don't 
take the time to understand what that is. What a great way of, of summarizing all that, Jeff. That's, that's exactly right. Um, we don't understand just how right right is. <laughs> Someone should put that on Twitter. Um, thanks, Jeff. Awesome. Any other thoughts? Words of encouragement? All right. Well, hopefully you are encouraged and edified and built up in, uh, in Jesus' prayer for you, you know. Um, let's go ahead and stand and we'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Um, I just had this thought that you know how we ask our friends, each other, we say, hey, man, could you, could you pray for me? And because we need the prayer. I mean, we need each other praying for each other. I just had this thought of um, the, nec- the next time you're hit with something, a report from the doctor, news from the boss, a slammed door by your spouse, whatever that looked, the next time and you think, man, I need to get Bob to pray for me, I need to get Hart, man, Hart, would you pray for me? Do that, okay? Get, get the saints praying. But think of this. Remember Jesus' prayer for you. Remember His desire for you to be with Him right now, which you are with Him, and you're with Him right now for a purpose so that you could see this glorious union between the Father and the Son because that's the same union you have with Him. Father, we are blown away this morning by your mercy, by your grace. I think of songs like, I don't even know how the lyrics go, but something to the effect of, we're like a tree bending beneath the weight of your Wind and mercy, your grace and mercy. Seeing a tree is being blown away by a revelation of your mercy, your grace. Think of other songs that I've sung. You make everything glorious. What does that make? so encouraged by what Jeff said. We just don't know how right you've made us. And I just pray, Father, you'd open our eyes so that we can see. It's your desire that we see. But the enemy does not want that to happen. He's confused preachers. He's confused teachers. He's confused the saints. And we pray, Father, for a revelation of the truth, the reality of our union with you to spring forth as plants in the spring coming from the dead soil, that the truth of our union with you be sprung forth from the depths of our soul in the most dead and despicable circumstances. There is life within. 
There's joy within. There's Christ Himself within us. God, help us to believe. Thank You for these saints. I thank You for the truth that will set us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of The Teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.